0: Morning. One of the things I like about preaching a journey is that you get to wear these nifty little, you know, uh, mic things. It's the closest I'll ever get to feeling like Springsteen. (laughs) I know it's not very close, but, you know. What I want to talk about this morning is the most important thing you can do for yourself and the most important thing you can do for others. I think that the most important thing you can do for yourselves is to get to know God, to do everything you can to get to know God intimately, personally, accurately, well. And the most important thing you can do for others, the most loving thing you can do for any other person is to help them to get to know the God of the universe. That's what I'm going to try to unpack this morning. Now, in your bulletin, there's a kind of an outline of where I'm going to go. Uh, you can use that to kind of keep pace with me. And if we're bo- both lucky, we'll be in the same place at the end. So I'm preaching out of Acts 17, and I'm going to go through it section by section, okay? Starting with verses 1 through 9. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks And not a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world, have now come here. And now Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others postpone and let them go. I want to make three points, related points, out of this first section. In the first century, among the Jews, there were differing opinions about who and what the Messiah would be. Some people thought that the Messiah would be just some sort of talented human being, a political and military leader, kind of like a Jewish version of Alexander the Great. This human being... Who would kind of sweep in, lead the Jews against the Romans, against other enemies, and restore Israel to its former glory. That was one view. A second view was that the Messiah would be somebody who was kind of supernatural. Kind of a maybe an angelic being. Kind of like the, uh, the Jewish version of, you know, God sent Superman from planet heaven. Okay? Supernatural. So first view... A human being, purely human being, second view, some kind of superhuman being, maybe an angel, but working in and through history, both cases. The third view was that at the very end of the age, when history, that history would end, and God would send in this, some, some kind of savior, maybe the son of God, who would, who would just kind of end history and uh, start a new world. Those are the three most prominent views at the time. So Jews differed in what, who, who and what the Messiah would be, but they knew two things about the Messiah. They all agreed on two things. The, one thing, the first thing they agreed on was that the Messiah would be was someone who was, would be chosen by God, beloved of God, empowered by God, anointed by God, blessed by God, beginning to end. Coming out of that, the second thing they all believed was that the Messiah could not in any way be cursed by God. He can't be blessed by God and cursed by God at the same time. And that was the problem that the early believers had when they talked about Jesus because everyone knew that Jesus hung on a cross and Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, Cursed by God is anyone who hangs on a tree. Which they, and they apply crucifixion to this Deuteronomy passage, and said, There's no way that Jesus could be the Messiah of God because he was cursed by God. So the key objection that the early believers, Peter and Paul and others, the key objection they had to answer, they had to deal with when they spoke before to, to Jewish audiences, if you will, they had to show that, in fact, the scriptures taught that the Messiah could be both blessed by God and cursed by God. That, in fact, the Messiah of God, the chosen Messiah of God, had to suffer and then rise from the dead. So you look at Peter's sermon in Acts 2, and you look at Paul's sermon in Acts 13, you look at Stephen's sermon in Acts 7, they dealt with this objection a variety of ways. They proved from the scriptures, they reasoned from the scriptures, proved and explained that in fact, the fe- that, that in fact, Jesus being on the cross proved that he was the Messiah. They dealt with a big objection. All of us have to understand what the big obje- objection, the key objection or objections are in our culture. And I would suggest to you that the key objection in our culture is that God, if there is a God, that God is trivial. He does not really matter. We live in a culture that trivializes God. We we live in a culture that makes God small in their own minds and in the Outflow of their lives. So, even people who have some vague idea that there is a God, some kind of God somewhere out there, they say, Well, yeah, there is a God, but you know, I live my own life. God doesn't really add anything to my life, doesn't really say a lot to my life. We live in a culture with a small God. and i want to deal with that some today now in this passage that i just read they prove they, they explain they reason from the scriptures they prove and explain that jesus had to suffer and die and there's some reactions some people believe and some people get jealous and the jealous people they stir up a riot they, they gather together some, you know, disreputable characters, you know, New York Jets fans, and they they kind of bring <laughs> they bring together and they, they 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 start a riot. And they say, "These people who are here, they've just caused trouble all over the world." Or another way to put it, they've turned they're turning the world upside down. Well, here's the thing: they were, in fact turning the world upside down. You know why? Because the world was already upside down. The world that they saw and the world that we see is not the world the way God created it to be. There's something wrong in our world. Our world is upside down. And what they were in fact doing was turning the world right side up again so that it began to look the way God wanted this world to to look. They were loving people. They were pouring out grace. They were offering forgiveness. They were healing people. They were bringing people together in unity. They were were turning the world upside, right side up. This past Thursday, I was meeting with Noel Sherry at the Bethel Seminary of the East in Auburn. And Noel introduced me to a guy, and we began to talk. and I find out that he used to be part of the Kilby Street gang. Worcester has 24 active gangs. This guy had been part of Kilby Street gang and had been actively involved in Kilby Street and spent time in prison, but he'd encountered Christ, people that helped him come to know Christ in a world that had been chaotic and violent and broken and lost, began to be turned right side up. And here he was now in seminary training to be a pastor and using his gifts and skills and abilities to bring good to people, to bring peace to people, to to bring life to people. And then as we were talking with this one guy, another guy came in. And I got introduced to him and we started talking. They were talking to one another. And I found out that this guy used to be in Latin Kings. Right now, we're sort of, there's a turf war going on between Kilby Street and Latin Kings and people getting shot. But here was a, here was a guy, former Latin King, another guy, Kilby Street gang, who were brothers come together encouraging one another. Their world was being turned right side up and through that they were helping others to turn their world right side up. And then the charge again in the passage was, they're they're defying Caesar's decree. They're saying that there is another king. His name is Jesus. Less than three centuries later, There was a Roman emperor who said the same thing. Constantine said, there is another king. There's a king greater than I. His name is Jesus. There is another king in our world, in our universe. There is another king who takes what's broken and fixes it. He turns things right side up. There's another king who lifts people out of violence and brokenness and craziness and helps them to live a life of peace and of sanity and of love and of grace and mercy. There is a king who brings enemies together and makes them brothers and friends. That's our king. There is another king, and this is what he does. This is what he's like. That's the true Messiah. And that king matters. Nothing trivial about Jesus. Nothing trivial about Jesus. Moving on to our next section. Starting verse 10, going to verse 15. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those of Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds, stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Let me just say one key thing here. Paul gets and his, his, his team kind of get driven out of Thessalonica. They get to Berea. They go to the synagogue. They preach the same message they preach in Thessalonica. And people listen to them carefully. They're open to, the, to what Paul is saying And they check it out for themselves. They go and they examine the scriptures every day, daily. They check out the scriptures to see if Paul is true. We live in a world where there are all kinds of messages out there and all kinds of opinions, thoughts, ideas about who God is, what he's like, if there is a God, and so forth. And we hear all of these opinions. People in our culture hear all of these opinions. And the question is, what do we do with them? And what's noble according to this passage about the Bereans is that they, they're open to hearing new ideas and they check them out for themselves. They investigate them for themselves because they really want to know what's true. Truth matters to them. We can learn something from them. Truth ought to matter to us. It ought to matter to us a lot. There's an example to follow. We ought to be people who check out the scriptures daily to see if what we're hearing is true. We ought to know the scriptures and and invest in the scriptures because knowing God is the most important thing you can do for yourselves. Knowing God well is the most important thing you can do for yourself. And you can't help somebody else know God well, which is the most important thing you can do for them, unless you know God well. And the key way for us to get to know God is to read the scriptures, think about them, reflect on them, let them kind of marinate our souls and come in deep into it, the core of our being, and then live out what we see the scriptures saying. So Paul now is in Athens, and picking up verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what's this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, well, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd we'd like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there, spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. You hear the questions they're asking, what is this babbler talking about? Right? You know why they asked that question? They asked it because Paul was babbling. He was talking and talking and talking and they didn't have a clue as to what he was talking about. They didn't know what he was talking about. These were very smart, very sophisticated, very cosmopolitan people and they had no idea what Paul was talking about. They thought he was talking about foreign gods. Notice the plural, gods. They thought he was talking about a male god, Jesus, and a female god, resurrection. And the reason they thought that was because in Greek, the word for Jesus is obviously male, male noun. The word for resurrection is a female nod, uh, noun, a anastasis. So they thought he was talking about a, a male god and his wife or consort resurrection. Why did they think that? Because that was the world that they lived in. They knew Greek gods, they knew mythology, they knew philosophy, but they didn't know anything about. The Hebrew scriptures, the background to talking about Jesus and the resurrection. They had no background to make sense of what God, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what Paul was talking about. To them, it was simply babbling. You know, a lot of our friends think that we're babbling too. Because they don't have the kind of background to, to really know what we're talking about. Here's an experiment. When you talk, next time you talk to friends who have no church background or very little church background, ask them what they think, who they think Jesus is, what a disciple is, what what the word word means. You you know, got to know the word. What what is the word? What does atonement mean? What does salvation mean? Who is Paul? Who is David? Who is Elijah? A lot of our friends really won't know how to answer. They don't know who what, those, what these terms mean, or who these people are. But we throw them around all the time as if everybody knows what we're talking about. They don't. Why should they? They don't live in this world. Right? We need to know, we need to be clear, we need to try to understand what our friends actually hear when we're talking to them. They may, what we're trying to say may not be what they, what they actually hear. And the only way we're going to know that is by asking them questions and listening carefully and trying hard to clarify what we're saying. And this is what Paul tries to do in what follows. So picking up with verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens... I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very things you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. See, the Athenians were like most of us trying to hedge their bets. They wanted to make sure they didn't leave anything out. So they have all kinds of altars to the gods they'd heard of. And then they set up altars to gods that they hadn't heard of just in case there was a god who might be important. They were hedging their bets. Right? But you don't hedge your bets if you're sure about what you have. So part of what's going on here is they're hedging their bets because they're not sure if they're safe. They're, they're still feeling uncertain, scared. The world still seems big to them. We live in a culture that hedges our bets all the time. We hedge our bets. So even if we believe in God, we believe in God, but we believe in 401Ks. We believe in God, but we believe in, you know, whatever else we put our trust in. We believe in God and we fear God, but there are other things we fear too, so we take care of them as well. We hedge our bets. And I'm trying to say to you that with our God, we don't have to hedge our bets. He's worth putting everything into. Paul continues. The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by hands. So the first thing that Paul is saying about this unknown God is that he is the creator and the Lord of the universe, verse 24. There are all kinds of implications behind this. Part of what he's saying is that the universe is not an accident. We're not the product of time plus space plus chance, living meaningless lives in a meaningless universe. Instead, we are the product of an intelligent, purposeful mind, and our lives have purpose. Each of our lives have meaning and purpose because our meaning and purpose has been established by the creator God of the universe. Right? Ultimately, we're made to love and to honor and to obey God and to love and to honor and to serve other human beings. That's what God says our lives are to be about. And because the creator God made us and made us for a purpose, he actually knows what our lives are to be about. So when he says love God and love others, he's saying this is what a meaningful, purposeful, significant, satisfying, beautiful life is. He knows us. He loves us. He knows how to help us and heal us and restore us and make our lives count. And because God is our creator, he has the right to establish the purpose and meaning and direction of our lives. He has the right to do that. Most people in our culture do not see themselves as accountable to God in any way. What Paul is saying is God made you and he sustains your life, therefore he has the right, the authority to tell you how to live. That's a reasonable argument. That makes sense. The second thing Paul says about this unknown God we see in verse 25. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Our God is the giver and the sustainer of life. He's completely self-sufficient. He does not need anything, does not need to be served. There are implications of that too. Because he is perfectly self-sufficient, because he doesn't need anything from us, does not need to be served by us. He does not need to manipulate us or use us or abuse us to further his ends. God is not just using us to get what he wants. Rather, out of extraordinary, infinite abundance, God is pouring out to us. He's he's actually serving us. He's serving us by giving us life, by giving us um, health by giving us salvation. We have a God who's on our side looking out for our good and not trying to use us in any way. But what that means is He's absolutely trustworthy. We can trust God. And even when God asks us to do things that seem hard to us, we can trust that God actually knows what he's doing and he's asking us to do whatever it is because it's actually good for us. It'll help us to be the people that God created us to be. To be most fully human and alive and fruitful. We need God. We need God. It's God, not merely His creation. It's God who is the environment in which we exist and really flourish. third thing Paul says is that God is the maker and ruler of all the nations. So verses 26 and 27. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though so he's not far from any one of us. Paul is saying several things about God. One of the things he's saying is that God's in charge. He's a ruler over creation and a ruler of, over all history. He's saying that God is not the special property of any nation or culture or people. The Athenians thought they were special, the most special entitled people in the the universe. The Jews at times thought that as well. It could be said that sometimes Americans think that way. But the truth is that God is not tribal. He's global. He makes himself known to all peoples. No one culture or people, nation, tribe, whatever, has any special claim upon God, intrinsically special claim upon God. No one deserves God more than any other person. No nation or people deserve God more than any other nation or people. God is global, beyond global. It also means that we belong to one another because we come from the same place. He picks up on that idea again in verses 28 and 29. But before I get there, the point is, God does all, God rules over history. Why does he do this? He does this, it says, because he wants us to to seek him and find him. God is a God who wants to be known. He really wants to be known. He's done everything necessary to reveal himself to us. So when we're talking to our friends, family members who do not know God, know that God wants them to know him even more than we want him to know him. Okay? And then verses 28 and 29 again, he says, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. He's saying God is the father of us all. God exists and we come after him. He's the father of us all. All of us receive our life from him. We need God. And what that means is because God, because we're God's off, we come from God, ultimately. We cannot think that we can create gods for ourselves. We can't create God or God's for ourselves. Now, people in the ancient world made these little idols, literally physical representations of God, and then they bow down and worship them. Idols made of gold or silver or wood or whatever. they just bow down and worship these idols. We know that's kind of silly, right? How can a man-made thing become bigger than the person who, who made them? How could something we make with our own hands then direct our lives for eternity? But in our culture, we don't do that. Here's what we do. We do things, we say things like, uh, you know, I like to think of God as, or, you know, everyone has a right to determine what God is for him or herself. We get to determine. It doesn't work that way. How can finite minds determine what an infinite being is like and determine it crafted for themselves? And why would we think that a God that we create ought to be the object of our worship. Right? That's idolatry. It doesn't work. What Paul is saying is that there's a real God out there. There's a real God out there. He's not just the projection of our longings. He's not just the creation of our imaginings. There's a real God out there, and this real God has come close to us. He's revealed himself to us. He speaks to us. He's made himself known to us. And this God, this real God, has a father's heart. He has a father's heart. It's in him that we find our meaning and our purpose for our life. We're radically dependent on God for our very being and for all that we do. And this God has a Father's heart. We can trust him. But this God also is the just judge of the world. Picking up with verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. God overlooked the, the, the idolatry, the, the human-created worship of human beings. He overlooked all that, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when, we will ju- when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this by ra- to everyone by raising him from the dead, Paul started by talking by reasoning from the scripture about Jesus and the resurrection. He's come back to Jesus and the resurrection here. But in between, he's laid a case for what this God is like. He's saying that ultimately this God will come to judge. He has the right to judge. But because this is a good God, the one who will judge is the one who laid down his life on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. So before all of us have the option of, of before meeting God as judge, we get a chance to meet him as savior. That's good news. That's good news. So, again, here's my point. God Is not trivial. He is the creator and lord of the universe. He is the giver and sustainer of life. He is the maker and ruler of all the nations and peoples and cultures. He is the father of all human beings. He is the just judge of the world. Knowing God is the most important thing you can do for yourself. So get to know God, study the scriptures, think about them, invest in them, live them out. Making God known is the most important thing, the most loving thing you can do for any other human being. So take your relationship with God, what you know about God, and bring that to your friends and family members. But to do that, make sure you know your friends and family members, how they think, how they reason, what they actually know. Be clear. Ask questions. Listen listen carefully. Be generous. Don't hoard your knowledge of God, and your relationship with him. Freely share it with others. Share it with passion and with conviction. Don't hedge your bets. Knowing God is the most important thing you can do for yourself. Making God known is the most important thing you can do for others. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. Thank you that you have enabled us to know you. Thank you for the people who helped us to get to know you. May you bless them. Lord, help us to seek you with our whole hearts. Help us to know you as you want to be known. And Lord, help us to be generous in sharing the life we have with you with others. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.